Now, c- congratulations to the Sinners, with all due respect. Even the Aggies won. It, you ever wonder why they do that? I, it's just, never mind. Um, we are talking about love from 1 Corinthians 13. Um, my premise for this series, in case you hadn't listened, is, is that 1 Corinthians 13 is in many ways the Apostle Paul's summary of the real solution for all of the problems he speaks of throughout the book. The Corinthian church is a particularly messed up church. And, and so he deals with those particular issues, but then here in the middle of two chapters about the spiritual gifts. And as an exegete, you have to ask yourselves, why did he put it between the two chapters on the same subject? I think because he's pointing to this subject as the focal point of the whole book. So as you look at all of the issues that exist in the Corinthian church, I believe he's saying, but if you come back to this, this will resolve them all. I can also defend that theologically and biblically because Jesus said the loving God and loving your neighbor summarizes the whole law so that, so that it is the perfect solution to whatever ails you, if you will, as an individual and as a church. And so, we've, we've started out by looking at these, we looked at the whole chapter, but it's particularly are focusing on the characteristics that are described in verses 4 through 7. Love is patient, love is kind, is not envied, does not boast, is not proud, doesn't honor, dishonor others, it's not self-seeking. Each one of those, we can see how they're applied to the struggles that go on in that church. Today, I want us to look at Maybe the besetting sin of our day. It's not easily angered, and it keeps no records of wrong. And is there any doubt for any of us that we're in a pandemic of anger? Is there any place you can look in life where anger is not a problem? Families being cooped up and all of that has created pressure on families. Psychologists say that business is way up. The political realm is incredibly angry. You, you, just, you just look at our society. At, at, we, we, we struggle with being able to communicate about things that are so basic to who we are. We, we have a problem with anger. Now, uh, these words, in each case, I've tried to look at what the words mean, and, and these are a little difficult because, like so many of them, they're used both positively and negatively. I, I look, first of all, of course, I looked at the, the original languages. That's what I'm paid to do. And, and then one of the things I sometimes will do, and I'd encourage you to do, is just look and see how different translations uh, treat something like this. So, for instance, the Net Bible done by Dallas Seminary Faculty says, it is not easily angered or resentful a good summary. The New Living, which Harold Honer of our church had a part in with the book of Ephesians, said is not irritable and keeps no record when it has been wronged. I always love to look at Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase, the message, because he's so good. Love doesn't fly off the handle, and it doesn't keep score of the sins of others. 
if you look in the outline, I've summarized it as it's calm and forgetful. It's calm and forgetful. Now, these words can be used in an appropriate sense. For instance, easily angered. In Acts chapter 17, it says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked. He was angered within him as he was observing the city full of idols. In other words, an appropriate kind of anger was the anger at the evil that he saw because of the idolatry in Athens. So you had this remarkable city, one of the greatest cities in the history of the world, and, and the idolatry and all that came out of it, the temple prostitution and everything else that came out of it caused him to have a righteous anger. So, there are times when the word is used appropriately and positively. And the second word, doesn't keep a record, is actually one we're very grateful for. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, all of this, what he's been talking about, is from God who reconciled us, this is verse 18, to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. One of, one of the arguments the Apostle Paul is making in 2 Corinthians is that we have experienced reconciliation to God, therefore we are reconciled to others, and now we have a ministry of bringing about reconciliation. Wherever Christians are involved, there should be reconciliation, not division. That's one of the things that we should do. One of the things as a church staff we fight for is holding marriages together. It's something we're very serious about. It doesn't always work, but we're serious about it. It's reconciliation. It is a, it is a fact of the work of God. So, he says, we have that. He gave us the many of reconciliation, verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And then he uses our word, not counting people's sins against them. We are called not to count people's sins against us because God doesn't count our sins against Him. Did you get that? How can I be resentful, keep a record of the offenses against me, if the perfect God of the universe doesn't keep a record of my sins. You ever thought about it on those terms? Uh, put it another way, how would you feel if God only forgave you the way you forgive others? That's uncomfortable, right? Uh, it's amazing how many people walk around with the heavy burden of resentments. It's like, it's like carrying a 60-pound pack on your back all the time is, is those resentments that become such a burden. In, in marital counseling, we'll sit down sometimes and, and, and you'll say, what's going on? And you'll hear this litany of things that have happened. One time I met with a woman and everything she named against her husband were things he did before they even got married. And I'm thinking, now I think it's your problem. You shouldn't have married this guy, Right? But it, once you did, there's got to be, you see what I mean? Even, even when, for instance, there's been divorce, carrying those resentments is a horrible burden, right? It's an incredible weight. 
One of the ironies of it is when we allow ourselves to be embittered by other people, we actually give them control of us. Isn't that ironic? Because, because their impact continues to affect our lives. We, we literally give control to the people that have hurt us most when we bear these resentments. So he, he starts out the Corinthian, uh, this Corinthian section with kindness and all that are really nice. And now he really gets nasty because he says we just can't be easily angered or carry around resentments. You know, we all know this is an angry time. It just is. It, it's, uh, I'm older than most of you. Not Dillard and some others, but I'm older than most of you, and, and he's a lot older than I am. And, uh, but it's amazing he can even walk. But I'm, I'm, I'm older than most of you. I told him, what are you going to do, fire me? At this point, it's, the wheels are going to come off. Um, um, I've never seen America like this. Never in my life. I've never seen the discourse in our community the way it is now. N never seen the dynamic of anger that we see right now. And you can feel it, can't you? It's, it's, it's just in the air. But it's not what God expects for us. The reality is that we have way too often allowed what's going on in the world to come into the pew and affect us. We have way too often brought that resentment, that anger, and let it feed into our relationships in the body of Christ and our response to the world around us. And we're all the worse for it. We're all the worse for it. So let's take a look. As I told you, I think I can point to passages that where these particular issues were particularly appropriate for not angry or resentful. First of all, not angry. Look at unjust justice in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In other words, he's dealing with a problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that anger is part of the problem. He said, if any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we'll judge angels and how much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to your shame. It's, is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court. And this in front of unbelievers. The first problem he points out is, not only do you have these conflicts, but then you go to unbelievers to resolve them. And the, and the unbelievers in court don't share our worldview, don't share our view of what's right and wrong. He's saying, surely someone among you is wise enough to resolve these things. 
the reality is the, that this stuff is hard. Now, there are some attorneys in the room. This is where every time I have to be careful that I, no, I don't. Attorneys kind of get a bad whipping on this passage because after all, that's how that all happens. And, um, um, and I'm grateful for the Christian attorneys I know who really try to apply this and bring this into the marketplace. And I've seen it many, many times. Um, but the Apostle Paul says, first of all, it's crazy that, that, that you would let your anger get to the point that you, you wouldn't work this out in the body of Christ. But the real kicker is the next verse. Because that's where he goes to the real issue. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Did you get that? In the body of Christ... In light of what Jesus has done for us. What does he do for us? He was wronged for our sake. How can we then be unwilling to be wrong for someone else? It's a tough argument. One, one of the points I've made throughout all of this is we often treat the love passages as if it's a sweet Hallmark card kind of passage that, you know, we read at weddings and everybody goes, oh. But the reality is, it is a brass-knuckled passage that, that hits home at very core of our view of how we respond to people in life. Paul says, love is willing to be hurt. Love is willing to be hurt. Now, that goes against everything we hear in the world, right? But Love is willing to be hurt. If you're going to be in a relationship, you know, there is, I've said this many times here, there's no one in the world that can hurt me as much as Julie because of our love. When you love, you open yourself up to hurt, right? And, and when you're angry, what are you doing? You're protecting yourself from hurt, being unwilling to be wronged. So why would we as Christians want to go around getting hurt. We don't want to, but we're willing to be for the sake of love. You get it? Now, hear me. This is about civil lawsuits. This isn't about criminal law. Criminal law cases brought by the state against the offending party, and that fits the role of the state in Romans 13. That's part of what the state is required to do to bring order in a society. That's why we pray for peace. We pray for freedom. We pray for God's protection so that, so that the body of Christ can flourish. That's part of what Paul says in Romans 13. I've been listening to um, Tony Evans' series on how should I vote. And it's just stunningly good as he walks through these roles of government and how those issues apply to our lives. Um, but on civil cases, the Apostle Paul says, you're, you're suing each other because you're just not willing to be hurt. Men and women, love means being hurt. Uh, if you've ever had children, you know, 
there's nothing sweeter than a baby. I mean, you, you look at that baby and think, oh my gosh, this is, I can't believe this came from me somehow. And, and then there is that first day that they drive you to the point of madness. Is that a good word? I mean, when our, our children were born while we were in seminary, I, I would study till two in the morning, get up at seven, go to work and take classes, come home, help put the kids to bed, then study till two in the morning. I was kind of tired. But there were days that Julie would meet me at the door with our infant daughter and say, here, she's yours. If you've raised children, you get that, right? I mean, they, they can drive you... Even sweet little perfect innocent babies can drive you insane. Why do you put up with it? Why not just put them out for time out in the street for crying out loud? I mean, I mean, I mean surely there's something you can do. Why do you put up with it? It's obvious. Because you love them like you've never loved anything else. Right? You, you love your kids in a way that is inexplicable. Because... Love is willing to be hurt. Love is willing to be hurt. So the, rather than uh, responding with anger, love loves. It's willing to be hurt. And it also doesn't keep a record. I want to illustrate this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If you recall from 1 Corinthians, because I'm running out of time, and recall from 1 Corinthians, there, there was an individual, uh, a couple that were involved in an incestuous relationship. We don't even applaud that in East Texas, but it was going on in 1 Corinthians. And, and, and Paul writes them and says, come on, guys you got to deal with this. You can't let this go on in the church. You're, they, you've got to go to them and say, this is not appropriate. Because the Corinthian church was so used to the decadence around them, they were willing to look away. And, and by the way, you're not doing anyone any favor when you allow them to continue in behavior that by God's definition is destructive, right? So in 1 Corinthians, there, Paul it calls them to do what we call church discipline, to address this. Well, in 2 Corinthians, he writes and says, hello, let me read this to you. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now, if someone has caused you grief, he's not so much grieved me as he grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely, and the punishment afflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. So now instead, you ought to forgive him and comfort him so he won't be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. When he repents, forgive him. Have you ever noticed how we have this tendency to label someone who messes up? I'll tell you one of the big ones in the church historically is divorce. God hates divorce. We never want divorce. It's always a result of somebody's sin. It's a horrible thing. And the people that go through it know it better than anyone how horrible and difficult it can be. Right? But the last thing you want to do is stick a scarlet D on them. For crying out loud, I mean, it, it, we, are a, we are a community about mercy and grace that, that where the Lord is, there is no shame, right? You, 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 we extend mercy and grace to people. And, and that's what Paul is instructing them. Yes, we, we don't go easily angered, and we, we, but we also don't hold someone's mistake over them 
for the rest of their lives. If they've repented, if they've turned, welcome them back so they can experience God's love. Why? Because that's what God did for us, right? Let's be honest, that's what God continues to do for us. And the real kicker is verse 11. Do this in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we're not unaware of his schemes. This is the big finish. Division in the church is the work of Satan. Division in the church is the work of Satan. John chapter 17, the Lord himself prays for unity. And when we allow the world around us to create division, we are allowing Satan to work his schemes. Does that strike you? When, when the political division in the world around us enters into the church so that we can't continue to love, Satan wins. Satan wins. Does that mean we all have to agree? Absolutely not. But when, when it blocks our ability to love, when there is no longer unity in the body of Christ, according to Jesus in John 13 and John 17, we say to the world, in effect, that Jesus really isn't the Son of God because He's not so powerful as to create unity among us. What the world desperately needs to see from us is unity among believers. Even when we disagree. And and, in an era with social media, in an era with all the stuff going on, we go off the handle if someone uses one word that we don't like. We, we go off the handle if someone hints that they're... I, in one day, I got one video that if you're a Christian, you could not vote for this guy. And the very same day or two, a day before, if you're a Christian, you can't vote for the other guy. I'm thinking, so I guess I can't vote for crying out loud. And both of them were filled with this... this they, it's just not the way Christians talk to each other, right? Because it, it's, there's not humility there. When, when we allow the division of the world to enter in the church, we, we tear apart the unity of the body of Christ. And we nullify much of our testimony to the world around us. We're called to be gracious and merciful and honor each other. And not fly off the handle just because they don't say what we like. And forgive them even if they went to OU or AM or voted the wrong way. I just want to make sure that Appleby was listening. Um, we have a cancer in our world right now. You can smell it. And we don't have the right to let it into our pews. If we can't get along now, what in the world are we going to do when we get in heaven? Because some of the people that we're saying such nasty things about, 
are going to be there. And some of them may get better mansions than we do, and that'll be really offensive, right? Love chapter is a brutal chapter because the Lord takes a simple word that we use a lot and He translates it into all of our lives. And, and rather than getting angry at someone, we have to choose their best. And rather carrying around resentments, we have to forgive and move on. But in doing so, we're free. And don't we all want to be free? Let's pray. Father, we confess that we like resentments. And sometimes we get real energy from being angry. But we don't like it so much when it's directed toward us. And we know in our hearts that you've called us to more. Lord, I pray that you would give us humility. Humility toward those that hurt us. Humility toward those who scare us. Humility to those with whom we disagree. So that when the world looks at grace, at our families, at the body of Christ, they see a unity that can only be described as a work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.